Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 5th of May with me in Welsh. I've been in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Future of Food Conference. I was delighted to speak to some of the participants and coming up are some quick-fire insights from Arla Foods' Hannah Sondregard, Poly Group's Leah Rankinen and Nestle's Owen Bethel. And a little later is a conversation I had recently about ethical trade and responsible sourcing with Brodie Partners George Yarangi and Dave Pendlington. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news with my colleague B. Stevenson. Three years later than promised, wealthy nations will meet their 2009 pledge of $100 billion in climate financing to developing countries this year. Germany's Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said that countries involved have met to discuss progress on their pledge to transfer the $100 billion per year from 2020 to vulnerable countries already suffering serious impacts of climate change. Whilst the goal has finally been reached, after wealthy countries provided only $83.3 billion in 2020, there is a feeling of too little too late. Developing economies say that they cannot afford to cut CO2 levels without further support from the rich nations who are responsible for the vast majority of emissions. It has also been noted that the real value of the $100 billion has eroded since the pledge was made in 2009. With climate change impacts taking hold earlier and more frequently than anticipated, it is clear that more funding will be needed to support developing countries' efforts to mitigate emissions. Another area of climate change financing needed for developing countries is loss and damage funding for climate disaster recovery, agreements for which were made at last year's COP. This week, 118 civil society organisations from the Global South have said that resources mobilised for the Global Fund must not come in the form of loans, which create further debt for developing countries. The civil society organisations from countries including the Philippines, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh said in a submission to the Transitional Committee that resources must also be additional, above and beyond any development assistance and existing financial commitments. A representative cited a 2020 report by Oxfam International, which found that 80% of all reported public finance was not provided by wealthy countries in the form of grants, but mostly as loans and other non-grant instruments. The representative said that the Global South must not be forced to take on any more debt to pay for a crisis that it did not create. In a new policy document, Barclays Bank has made clear to beef sector clients that they must prevent deforestation in their South American supply chains. The British bank has come under criticism from activists for its financing of the Brazilian food processor JBS, which in turn has been criticised for its role in the deforestation of the Amazon. The impacts of this problem are clear. Alone, the deforestation caused by cattle ranching is responsible for the release of 340 million tonnes of carbon to the atmosphere every year, which is equivalent to 3.4% of current global emissions. The bank is now requiring beef producers to stop the production of beef on or from areas in the Amazon, cleared or converted after 2008, and it requires them to commit to a deforestation-free South American supply chain for beef by 2025 in high-risk areas such as Brazil's Cerrado. Critics have pointed out that Barclays' policy document said that it would encourage companies that fall short of adhering to the policy, however it did not explain how. Additionally, there is no clear requirement for third-party verification on progress. New data from LinkedIn is showing that numbers of executives with sustainability knowledge are still failing to meet demand. Based on global data from across the platform, LinkedIn's Green Skills report highlights that whilst green skills have grown by 40% since 2015, this is not sufficient to meet the demands of new roles, as only 13% of the workforce possesses the skills needed for the necessary green transition. 
The report says that the share of jobs that require these skills has increased from 9.6% in 2015 to 13.3% in 2021, alongside the acceleration of corporate net zero plans and policies. Sue Duke, the LinkedIn Global Head of Policy, has warned that the gap in sustainability skills could jeopardise these efforts to deliver on corporate climate goals. To mitigate this problem, she argued that governments must champion the green skills agenda and businesses can do and must do more to equip their employees with the skills needed to deliver genuine environmental change. The next in Innovation Forum's Big Debate webinar series is coming up next week when we'll be discussing the future of meat with Samantha Worth, Executive Director for the US Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, Pierre Ederer, Founding Director of Gold Sciences and Programme and Science Director at the Global Food and Agribusiness Network, and Andy Shovel, Founder and Co-CEO of this. You can sign up to join us for free on Thursday 11th of May at 3pm UK time via the Innovation Forum website or via the link in the podcast description. And I do hope you can join us. It was great to be in Amsterdam this week at the Future of Food conference. I managed to catch several of the assembled experts and recorded a number of quick-fire interviews that will appear in the podcast over the coming weeks. Coming up now, though, are comments from representatives of dairy company Arla Foods, food brands retailer Polyg Group and Nestle. Okay, I'm joined by Hannah Sondergaard, EVP and Chief Agriculture and Sustainability Officer at Arla Foods. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you very much. Perhaps you can outline for us how Arla Foods is developing its net zero strategy. We have a lot of focus in Arla around scope 3. We've set commitments on scope 3 for 2030, reducing by 30%. We have then introduced two big products, let's say, to help us get there. One is a farm-based climate check that we've rolled out across 8,000 farms, and we are in our fourth year of running it which enable us to develop strategy at company level, but also the farmers to look at what they can do at farm level. The second product is an incentive model that we are now in the process of implementing. So on top of the climate check, we are now incentivizing the farmers that are taking most action. So we are allocating up to 500 million euros to pay out to farms that are taking action on climate. We heard a lot about in the session we've just been involved in, a lot about the need for a drive from the top of companies, from the C-suite, from the CEO, to drive things through the company. I know this is something that Arla is very much involved and your CEO is very much involved in the push. Is that how you think the shift from commitments to action can be made? It has to be done from the top of the business, from the C-suite. That's where you can really get the commitments shifting into action that we need. In our case, we are a farmer-owned company. Uh, that means our board is a group of farmers and this is where we need the transition is our scope 3 is 83% of our emission at a company level. It's clear we need the farmer board on board with us. It took us some time, we invested quite a bit of time in making sure that we had them with us. It is really important because particularly when you're working with scope 3, in our case the farmers, the paybacks will be longer, it's more complex, so it's important that you have that commitment before you get going. Hannah from Harlow Foods, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I'm joined by Leah Rankinen, Director for Sustainability and Public Affairs at the Parley Group. Welcome, Leah. Thank you very much. So we've been talking about human rights and evolving legislation. How is the evolving legislative landscape impacting the Polly Group around human rights issues? 
if we think about the big picture, it means that, that we need a lot of proactive advocacy work at this time. There are a lot of overlapping legislation coming on around this topic. Corporate sustainability, due diligence, deforestation, banning the forced labor products. It requires resources, it requires good planning, that also the cooperation internally, that we find the right timing, that we are not in too early to make the decisions, that we all know all the interpretations also. Is the move towards due diligence, is that a particular challenge for you? And how are you dealing with it across your different brands and products? We do have a different kind of a raw material. So I think in overall, the due diligence legislation is the company level legislation. And then the other ones is like a deforestation or banning the forced labor. Those are going to the product level. So it's a different kind of approach actually. And then we come to the implication that we need to look at the board levels, that how we integrate that really into the governance, into the operational level, like the withdrawals or recalls for the products in the future. And then the other way is the general due diligence. What is the company level approach? Do you welcome this move towards a level playing field approach? I mean, do you feel it is helpful for you? Yes, for sure. And if you think about the overall legislative landscape, the big change has been that uh, companies recognizing and we also at public that there are certain legislation. It's good to say yes, actually. <laughs> so this is particularly the, the harmonized level playing field is good that we don't have a country specific legislation coming and it helps us also towards our suppliers to increase the traceability and transparency. It came up in a session we were involved in just now, uh, the challenge around communicating on human rights issues and supply chains and how this sort of, that's an evolving process for so many companies and the fact if they are now becoming transparent there will be more problems to talk about rather than the past. Is this something you recognise at Polygroup and th there's a need to be transparent and accept that there are going to be these challenges? I think in generally companies are moving toward the understanding to be more transparent and so forth so it is helping and the reality is that it's good to talk about it, that there are always challenges, there will be challenges. It's more of the questions that how we act and what we do. Well, indeed, lots of companies moving very quickly in this area. But for now, Leah from Perley Group, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Joining me now is Owen Bethel, who is Environmental Impact Lead for Global Public Affairs at Nestle. Welcome, Owen. Hi, good to be here. Can you give us a bit of background as to what Nestle's net zero strategy looks like right now and how it's evolving? Nestle made a commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest back in 2019, which seems like quite a while ago now. And uh, a lot has happened since that announcement was made in September 2019. We've published a roadmap fully funded up to 2025. And that includes big milestones like reducing our emissions by 20% in absolute terms by 2025 and 50% by 2030. Since that point in time, we've been then embedding the roadmap and the skills necessary within the organization. We created an ESG strategy and deployment unit, which is then looking at all the projects we need to fund and the key initiatives that are required to reduce our emissions and remove carbon from the atmosphere. We've also learned a lot, I think, on the journey around embedding sustainability into our brands and our communications with consumers. And that is something that's evolved over time. We recognize the crucial importance of that for making the case for decarbonization. I mean, do you think your consumers are engaged in these issues? I mean, do you feel that, do you have any evidence that your consumers are wanting you to be engaging in the decarbonization push and thinking about net zero in 2050? I think there's irrefutable evidence that people care about climate change in many different parts of the world. It may not be the number one issue on their mind when they're purchasing a product, but if you can embed 
positive message around what the company behind the product is doing, it adds value, it adds something extra to that product which maybe wasn't there before. And in a highly competitive environment, that's really important for a company like Nestle. I've heard you in the past talk about sometimes being the subject to scrutiny because it's, it's a penalty of being an early mover. How do you keep momentum in a company like Nestle in the face of the sort of scrutiny that inevitably companies like Nestle are going to be subject to? To be honest, there is always a healthy debate around the pace and scale at which we can move as a company. We have to continue to deliver for our investors and for our retail partners and our consumers. None of that can be put into jeopardy by reaching net zero. But in fact, that's not the case. It's very much a win-win if handled correctly. But that doesn't mean there's not intense discussion and difficult decisions to make along the way. And that is something that we do see. There's a big challenge and it's great to see that Nestle and other companies are taking on that challenge. But Owen from Nestle, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. A couple of weeks ago, I was pleased to speak with Georgie Irangi and Dave Pendleton, following up some of the conversations from the recent Ethical Trade and Responsible Sourcing event in London. So we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the conversations at the recent Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trade Conference that we were all at. Georgie, supply chain risk and transparency was a recurring theme at the event. How are you seeing corporate attitudes towards ethical and human rights risks evolving? When you look at the evolution over different timescales, that pace of change really differs. So if we think about the last even five years, I think it's been really characterised by huge changes in regulation, reporting requirements, and that, whether good or bad, has changed perception inside of big corporations of what do they need to know and how do they need to find that out in order to credibly respond to the trends of regulation and reporting. We look back, it feels like just yesterday, but back in 2015 with the UK Modern Slavery Act was one of the first indicators of that move. But of course, we've got much bigger conversations happening in the EU and there are ongoing US custom border controls. So it, this is not just located in certain geographies. We're really starting to see that this is becoming more global in the conversation and how that's dealt with. The corporate attitudes are changing. Of course, sectors face different challenges. Geographies have different key issues. But the attitudes towards ethical trade and human rights risks is maturing. And I say that cautiously because I think there's still quite a decent amount of sophistication to build and learning to be done. And it's a continuous improvement journey. But I think it's maturing. Has it been regulatory risk when the lawyers are going to get involved? Is that, do you think, that's really shoved it into the boardroom conversation? I think it's escalated it, for sure. Having that legal risk or regulatory risk put into that beyond the risk to humans, which is, of course, the core of the human rights agenda is tackling, that brings it through a different lens into a senior conversation. As long as the catalyst being regulatory push, if that's the case, as long as then the work that follows that is not following too much of a tick box approach, because that won't get you to the best outcomes. If you're entering the room with the regulatory card and saying, you know, we have to do this, this is no longer a nice to do or a nice to have. I think then making sure that you're taking a strategic approach once you're in that room so that you're able to make a real difference, which is appropriate to your organisation and impactful to the people that you're trying to help. So definitely attitudes to supply chain and operational human rights risks are certainly evolving. What about the transparency point then? In the past, there was perhaps something of a nothing to see here approach for many companies. Do you think the companies are more willing now to be open about what's going on and to be open and transparent around the fact that success really is finding the breaches and doing something about them? Success is an interesting one when it comes to the, the human rights 
agenda with business because success isn't all oh, look everything's perfect and squeaky clean we found nothing because that's of course now I think more commonly known to be a massive red flag of your systems clearly aren't working so I think we can all be honest with ourselves and, and say that in every supply chain there will be risks whether there are abuses or violations in there whether you're contributing or causing those is a different discussion but there will be risks so I think that willingness to go beyond nothing to see here I do think that regulation push is helping that and helping push people to look further and I think because so much of the regulation is working towards transparency I mean we do have of course the upcoming mandatory due diligence push to date most things are working on a transparency outcome so that's helping lift the curtain a little bit I suppose at the core of it is that over the last even 10 years or so, there's been a lot more reporting about what companies are doing, how they're finding these risks through all of this greater transparency. And so that means that there are greater known pockets of risk. Where do you look for issues and how do you then importantly address and prevent those once they're found? The transparency agenda is changing um, how behaviours and how actions are happening inside of, of corporations. But I think crucially, and this is kind of the next step, is we need to move from the nothing to see here to let's find the issues. But importantly, it's we need to be ready of when you find those issues, what do you do? If we focus too much on shifting from nothing to see here to let's go find it, everyone will focus on process, everyone will focus on partnerships, and that's very important. But then everyone's going to panic when they find what's wrong. So I think remediation is key in that transition from moving away from nothing to see here to making meaningful impact. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that there needs to be an environment where companies can be comfortable to go and be transparent about what's going on. If you have a regulatory environment that is a a heavy stick approach to every time you find a problem, you're going to get sanctioned, well, then that will stop the looking for the problem. There's almost a, a challenge to make sure that the environment is correct. What does good regulation look like in this space? So much of the, is regulation good, is regulation bad for this? I think good regulation is great. (laughs) So what does good look like? I suppose it's where you build in transparency, that consistency has to be proportional, clear, targeted, accountable, but really crucially is it has to be enforced and implemented in a way which is consistent and fair so that you don't end up with these unintended consequences of transparency or lack thereof. Good regulation here should be created in conjunction with business responsible businesses shouldn't be against good regulation because if they're part of the conversation they've got a seat at the table they're part of sculpting what that should be able to provide for a better system then their voice really matters being part of the conversation understanding what's the intended outcome of that regulation and how will that be enforced and regulated moving forward making sure that it's fair and done effectively is key and that's so much easier said than done I know I sit here (laughs) without being in the depths of the European Parliament Um, conversations. But that at its core, to oversimplify, is make it transparent, proportional, targeted, accountable, and make sure that as a business, you're engaged in that conversation. Now, Dave, you joined me at the conference in one of the wrap-up sessions. Something that came up then that we talked about was the whole issue around how to engage procurement professionals. If you're going to engage procurement, what are the big key points to make that happen? At the end of day two, I actually framed it, be curious about your procurement function. And I would still say that. And why do I say that? Procurement is the business impact of your business is directly linked to your buying behavior. It's been my experience. It makes sense to really understand what's driving that buying behavior. And the other reason to engage a procurement function is that the only function within the business that's accountable for supplier relationships. So when you think about first mile of a business, It is procurement that is actually there. It's uh, working with suppliers, 
It's setting the commercial agenda of how it's buying that buying behavior, which of course is set by the business. It isn't procurement who sets up that buying behavior. It's what does the business actually need? We also talked about thinking end to end. Be clear that your buying behavior at, say, the back end of the business, the first mile, if you get that wrong, from my experience, will have or can have an impact at the front end of your business. So you may think you're buying particularly brilliantly competitively, but then if you're losing revenue at the front end of your business, perhaps because your customers don't actually want some of the impacts that you perhaps don't know about in their products, they're on their shelves, you begin to lose revenue. You've got to work with procurement and understand the end to end. But once you work with procurement, so understand procurement's agenda and what procurement has been asked to do by the business, you can then shape that into value creation. Procurement is there to create value for the business, and that can have a number of parameters, and that shifts into the sustainability space. I think be curious, understand that procurement is way more just than cost savings, which I think is usually where first people think procurement's all about. Of course, when you're talking about cost, the whole living wages issue comes into play. What's the role of procurement professionals in helping to ensure supply chain living wages? Yeah, we talked a lot about that in the conference. There was a realisation that a number of supply chains are probably broken. It's not equitable along the value chain. I think my first starting principle is understand the context of living wage, because living wage is linked to where are you actually buying, where you're buying your materials from, what's going on in that local context. And it can shift quite dramatically, even within a country. And think strategically, think strategically about your suppliers. And I'll link it back always to value creation. Reflect on your own business. A lot of these insights you know from your own business. I come from a manufacturing background. If you think within your own factories, you would have total production management, i.e. those on the production lines are the best people to ask what are the solutions. In a way, thinking about living wage, thinking about who you're sourcing from, understanding where those materials are being produced. My own experience is mainly in agriculture. And think, actually, if that living wage is all about how the people you're sourcing from, how does it enable them to be the most trained, the most safe workers, they're going to be the most productive. So really think that through. And you will have to be strategic about your suppliers because if you begin to pay a living wage and you've never thought about it in the past, you need to engage your business and your suppliers and really think that through. The benefits of that are a more productive, safe, well-trained and engaged value chain. It's a positive outcome, but go into it with your eyes open. Are there any specific keys then to unlocking the value that can come from engaging suppliers in wage issues? Your suppliers will always be a reflection of their customers' behaviour. If you've always treated your suppliers in a transactional way, don't be surprised that they treat you in a transactional way. You've got to be strategic. You've really got to think through who are going to be your suppliers to partner with. You can't engage in living wage in a transactional way. You can't just say, oh, yeah, one, one week we'll actually pay living wage. Oh, no, then we're going to switch suppliers. You've got to build relationship. You've got to build capability within your own business, but within your supplier's business, because it is going to be an investment within that value chain. You've really got to think strategically where you're going to do that. Once you understand that, that becomes some brilliant business insights for yourself. In doing so, it then becomes an opportunity to share within the sector of best practice. And a further big theme that kind of links everything together was that around collaboration. When I mean, people talk about collaboration and have been talking about collaboration for some time, but I wonder if for you, are there any specific things in relation to dealing with human rights and worker issues 
any specific things here that enable collaboration or that mean that collaboration is particularly important? It's thinking of 360 degrees in terms of human rights and collaboration. Worker voice is probably within supply chains is one of the richest data points for you. It's a little bit like TPM, my total production management point. Don't underestimate the value of worker voice. Those closest to the problem, engage with them. Trade unions, I think, as well. Trade unions can give a really good insight to businesses. Engage with government, of course. Business is a legitimate constituent government as well. And peers, of course. It is a pre-competitive space. And I think be honest where you need to lead. Who would look at you as a business and say, well, you know, they really ought to be leading there on human rights, but you can't lead everywhere. And I think it's also be clear where you have to be an enthusiastic follower learn from others, but then help them by implementing too and sharing within sector those best practices and inspire others. Lead where you have to lead, be an enthusiastic follower with the others who have to be leaders, because then it becomes scalable. Georgie, I think we had some good insights from our clients abroad as well, across mm-hmm. client collaboration. Yeah, Dave, I think where we see collaboration work really well is when there's clear communication of the objective of the collaboration and the roles of the different stakeholders. Because as you say, Dave, your worker voice, absolutely central, trade unions, government, peers. There's also so many open source tools out there these days. Even if you're at the beginning of your journey, take a look at all the various tools, whether that's from your peers, your competitors, because this is a pre-competitive issue. This is something that you should be working with your competitors to be able to tackle. Particularly, you can't lead all of this. There's not the opportunity to be at the forefront of every single issue. So you have to collaborate in order to create the scale and breadth of change that the human rights agenda within a global supply chain requires. Let's think about the future then. Georgie, you first. What do you think we'll be talking about at the conference next year? What I hope we'll be talking about is all the amazing stories of success and progress in the last year that we will have made. What I'd love to see next year, Ian, is really a conversation that is still orientated towards the practical. There are heaps and heaps and heaps of professional services firms and law firms out there writing briefing notes for us all on all sorts of what's the latest regulation, how do we make sure that we're ready, whatever it might be, you know, all the various different elements. But I think what true value from the Brody perspective comes from these conferences is hearing the stories of what challenges different organisations faced in tackling this together on their different journeys and their different supply chains um, and in their businesses. But also, how did they get to remedy? How did they remediate these different issues and be able to tell that story openly and honestly? It's the practical examples that I'd love to hear more when we come together next year for this conference across sectors, across different scales, geographies. I think that's where that peer learning is so valuable because I think knowledge is relatively cheap these days. (laughs) So I think sharing experience is where that real value comes. Building on Georgie's great points, I would love to see procurement professionals at the front of the room talking about their scalable value creation opportunities that they've actually managed to land within the business and sharing that as best practice from a procurement perspective and that they're really genuinely scalable. That would be, I think, very inspiring. So more procurement professionals at the front go, well, yeah, no, this is how we turned it into value creation for our business. A lot of people get stuck in the, well, what's the business case? I think it's engage with the procurement function, turn it into value creation, which they understand and they will deliver. So hearing those best practice examples of pragmatism, I think is very, very inspiring. I totally agree. Trying to engage procurement with all of this is clearly the next big challenge for everyone involved in this particular sector. It's been great talking to you, Dave Pendington and Georgie Aranji from Body Partners. Thank you very much. Pleasure.
The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. There is further reflection from our recent events and recordings of recent webinars. And do look out for the recording from last week's webinar we held in partnership with Nestle on regenerative agriculture. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. Thank you.